Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guests today are Max Frumis and Sujit Inder. Uh, we're talking about their brand new book, The Caesar's Palace Coup. If you enjoyed Barbarians at the Gate, this is sort of the sequel. This is what happens when big buyouts go bad. They'll be talking us through the uh, the bankruptcy process and the big players who are in here. It's an absolutely fascinating discussion. It's coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. What was the, C- the, the Caesar's Palace coup? Um, the, it, the, the coup part of it was, was really uh, the entire uh, Caesar's Entertainment uh, uh, company uh, that, uh, that had a couple. I guess it was overloaded with with debt from a buyout back in at the top of uh, uh, you know the the market uh, pre Great Financial Crisis started in two thousand six and they barely closed it in two thousand eight, and then uh, because it had so much debt, uh, it, it it had to eventually after a lot of different machinations file for bankruptcy in two thousand fifteen, and um, there was there is just this this giant war over um, the you know, the, the entity that filed for bankruptcy, which included Caesar's palace. So it was very appropriate. Um, uh, you know, but there's, there's dozens and dozens of casinos and, and like a, a, a huge amount of money and, and businesses that are wrapped up in the entire company. Uh, and you had creditors that were fighting with the private equity uh, companies that, uh, that bought it out in 2008, Apollo and TPG. And so, you know, really the, the coup portion of it was that, um, that these creditors, they were able to uh, uh, ultimately prevail uh, and, uh, you know, and take control of a large portion of, of the company through a chapter of 11, chapter 11 process. Uh, even though the, the, the private equity owners did everything that they possibly could and, and probably more than they probably should have to uh, to maintain uh, ownership and as much control of, of, of you know different assets as as, um, as they as they could. So it went through some sort of bankruptcy. It, the TP, whoever the whoever the private equity owners were was it TPG and Apollo, right? That's right. And it fell to uh, fell to bankruptcy just because paid way too much at the very top of the market, totally loaded with debt. Then it goes into this bankruptcy process, which is. Um, Folks might not know, but that's a that that's a. There are lots of investors out there who focus solely on this part of the process, and they you, they use it as a means to get control of the entity. So, c- can you talk us through what was the? How did it all play out? Uh, well, there's. I mean, yeah, uh, I'll so, start with distressed debt investing, um, and then I guess Suji will will get into the. Uh, 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 like the process, but distressed debt investing world is, you know, involves a lot of uh, very sophisticated hedge funds that buy up debt 
of, uh, of you know companies that might be trading at a, a large discount pennies on the dollar because the company is is in financial trouble or some sort of distress. Uh, and in this case, they had purchased a lot of the the Caesar Entertainment debt. And then uh, um, sometimes they recover that through a Chapter Eleven. Uh, sometimes they recover that because the company recovers or, or you know some other type of deal is struck out of court. Uh, in this case, it, it, it went through the Chapter 11 process. So uh, you can add to that. Yeah, I mean, so I, th I think this, the simplest way to think of this is uh, bankruptcy really has become a, a place for entrepreneurship in America where you can buy a, a company uh, and you get the chance, uh, if you want to put real money after it, to, to reset its capital structure, reset its operations. <laughs> a way to get a ready-made business. And so the smartest investors in the world are thinking uh, rather than buying a, a company that's healthy, we can buy a company, we can, uh, we can make money that way. And so who are the, who are the players in the, uh, through that process? Yeah, and so uh, certainly the, the private equity firms here were Apollo and TPG, two very well-known firms, real pioneers. Uh, in this, uh, in, in the world of buyouts, and we we spend uh, the first part of the book going through the history of these firms and where they came from, how they really uh, uh, really uh, seized the marketplace in the early '90s. TPG is very famous for uh, its initial its initial origin trade was buying Continental Airlines out of bankruptcy and making a fortune. Uh, Apollo had uh, come out of Drexel, uh, the uh, famed junk bond bank of the '80s that uh, that had uh, problems over Michael Milken's scandals, but uh, then was uh, it's uh, some of its key executives were, were reborn in Apollo, uh, and then you have these uh, hedge funds, which are uh, firms that are not have some similarities with private equity firms, but they really specialize in buying and trading securities and uh, being very savvy about the legal process and uh, also. Again, when you when you buy a security, when do you sell it? And so those firms are like Elliott, uh, which is the firm founded by Paul Singer, who's most famous for their fight with Argentina, which went on for more than a decade, and they they seized a ship uh, very famously. Uh, Elliott's a big, uh, important player. Appaloosa's another uh, important player, a guy named David Tepper, who. Uh, was a famous trader at Goldman Sachs, fell out there, started Appaloosa and made a series of really smart trades. And I think he's probably the single richest person in the story. He's probably worth $20 million. And after this case, he, um, he buys the Carolina Panthers football team for a record price. We, we think those things, we think his victory in Caesars and, and that, that purchase of the football team are, are related things. Uh, and then you've got these firms like Oak Tree, which is uh, another important kind of distressed debt pioneer. Howard Marks uh, is the founder of that firm, co-founder. He writes the famous memos that come out and he's this like market sage. And so you really have the biggest players in the world on Wall Street in this case. A lot of business stories, which are good, uh, often have B and C list players we actually have a story that's an a-list story with a-list play story yeah so some very big um players very big egos very sharp elbows in there so how uh how, what, what was the basis for apollo and tpg they, so they were trying to defend the equity but what was their sort of basis for you know staying in there and arguing that the equity had some value yeah, so yeah, we, I think we have an anecdote in the book about um, about Blackstone, which uh, had similarly bought uh, 
Hilton Hotels uh, right before the financial crisis, and they did a restructuring, and ultimately Blackstone made $14 billion in Hilton when it seemed like it was going to go bankrupt. And so it's the same kind of thesis here. I mean, they believe in this business seizures. They think it's cyclical and it's going to snap back. They just have to keep it alive for long enough and keep Elliott and Oaktree and Appaloosa at bay. And if they do that, they're going to make billions of dollars. And so the story is about that process and how, how, how that went, went wrong. Max, you were going to say? Uh, yeah, I would say like one of the, um, uh, you know, one of the premises that all of the distressed investments were based on as well were that just it doing, you know, valuation by people who understood gaming and they understood the value of, of these casinos. Um, there, the, there was $18 billion in debt at the operating company at the time that this ultimately filed for bankruptcy. And uh, distressed debt investors, they did this calculation between what they felt the value, the, the, the value of that entire entity should be and where the collective debt was trading. And there was just, there was just a huge discount already. Tranche of debt they, fe they felt was undervalued. There were different arguments for different tranches of debts, but it, but everybody believed that the the like intrinsic value of the uh, uh, of the entire entity was was undervalued. Apollo thought that yeah, it just needed to snap back and they would be able to recover something if they could maintain control. All the creditors thought the same thing, and you know ultimately they had you know they had rights as creditors to. Uh, to you know, to force force the hand of the owners, uh, but everyone really did agree that uh, the business would would snap back eventually and 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 be very valuable, which it was. So the whole enterprise is is valuable, but the problem that they have is they have some sort of liquidity issue where they they just can't meet the debts as and when they fall due, they breach the covenants, and that's what triggers all of this. Is there any um, suggestion that the the purchases of the debt might have aided that process along? Absolutely, and they they would they would proudly they would proudly say that that was the case. Um, I, I mean, and there's like you know to say that there's this is a liquidity problem, right? Is is like being in a you know a ship that's 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 vertical going down and, and like and saying I think we got a little bit of water that's uh, that's, that's uh, coming on board. Um, it, it, you know the. The company was, you know, two years prior to it filing for bankruptcy, <clears throat> it was it was clearly not going to be able to service several billion dollars of interest payments, and at that point, you know, they they started doing these different transactions that shifted uh, valuable assets out of the operating company, and while it solved a, you know, it solved the problem temporarily by uh, getting some additional cash into the into the uh, 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 into the operating company, um, it took away revenue and EBITDA. Right? And so all the things that they were saying, that, you know, th that they were doing to try to, uh, you know, stave off uh, this, uh, this liquidity shortfall uh, just wound up exacerbating it. And it brought the, you know, it brought the day of reckoning that all the creditors want. And the creditors, they were like, they got to stop taking these assets. This is super aggressive. And so one of the, one of the, you know, uh, among many things that they did to force their hand, uh, besides you know filing a couple different lawsuits about the transactions themselves, was 
uh, Elliott Management was behind a lawsuit to try to appoint um, a, 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 you know, essentially a conservator <laughs> to, uh, to, to put, you know, Caesars into the hand of someone, someone who would uh, uh, take away from Apollo. And so they filed this very aggressive lawsuit previously. It was one of the many things that, that forced Apollo and TPG to come to the table and come up with some sort of agreement uh, to, to, you know, to file it at a certain date with at least one uh, class of creditors on board. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, the, the creditors, they, they did a number of things to, to, to force the issue. Um, and, uh, and, and ultimately, you know, they, Apollo and TBG didn't have much of a choice. Must be a little bit nerve wracking sitting on the other side of the table from Singer because they are one of the few funds that has gone out there and actually foreclosed on a sovereign, which you don't see often. Uh, it's often that they're going after big businesses, but the a sovereign is an entire. And I think it wasn't. I, I thought it was a naval ship, but I don't think it was actually naval. The uh, the 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 shit that they actually foreclosed them. But do you do you, do you discuss that story? Have you? Yeah, you, we have that story in the, the background uh, to Elliot. And I think what's what's interesting about this case is, in my opinion, there's like two firms that really really matter as as uh, that that tower over the rest of the industry uh, in distressed debt investing. And one is Elliot. Uh, they just have deep principles, they have deep pockets, they do a lot of work and they take huge stakes and take very aggressive positions and they, they hold, uh, they stick to their guns, literally, um, or figuratively. Uh, and then Appaloosa the same way. They, again, again uh, both take big stakes, have very kind of charismatic owners uh, and they just strike fear in the heart of everyone else because they can just take such large stakes. And when they when they have a conviction about something, they just don't back up, which is what happened here with both Elliot and Appaloosa. Like Apollo's also uh, a titanic figure in this world and people are afraid of them. But uh, Elliot and Appaloosa are truly the two firms in the world that are capable of standing up to Apollo. And that's that's what the story is largely about. Well, even even Apollo is a is a frightening prospect too, because Leon Black's had that very long history with Drexel Burnham, and then uh, Leon Black, who's the the well, maybe now former leader of of uh, yeah. of Apollo. But uh, well, and that's that's a big part of the story, and that there is this pressure and intimidation campaign that Apollo uh, sets forth against various creditors, and it works most of the time. People are afraid of standing up to these guys and getting in their way, and it affects their ability to do business down the road. There's another important firm called Canyon, which is very aggressive at first, but then starts to feel the heat a little bit and, and backs off. And uh, Oak Tree, also a very formidable firm, uh, gets nervous because they're standing there alone. And, and very dramatically, I hope we tell them the story that Appaloosa shows up. So it is this there is this real clash of the titans and this clash of egos. And uh, you, you, we hope in this story, like the, the suspense is who is going to blink first, who's going to back down, uh, because these firms are not used to anyone telling them what they can and can't do. Yeah, certainly no shrinking violets among that group. Uh, what's your background? Do you guys come from, or are you reporters, or are you uh, finance guys, or how, how did you how did you come together and and find the story? Yeah, one of each. Um, so yeah, my, my background is uh, you know is is as a journal long time long time financial journalist um, and. You know, when I when I, I came to New York about eleven years ago on a private equity beat with the deal, and uh, 
and then gravitated towards the you know the debt that was put on to all these private equity deals, uh, then to distressed debt uh, specifically, uh, and then you know and then I uh, um, helped start up a, a company specifically dedicated to uh, uh, you know putting out stories and uh, technical coverage of distressed debt investing and restructuring. Uh, and all of, you know, and all of our clients were actually hedge funds. And a lot of the people that were involved, uh, so uh, you know, very very niche technical uh, business journalist by by background. Um, um, but Sajid has, uh, you know, he has he has he's the bona fides as a businessman prior to his, uh, uh, you know, rebirth as a journalist. Yeah. So so by way of background, I've been at the FT for eight years now. Uh, but before that, I was uh, an investment banker uh, for many years. Uh, I've been an analyst at an investment bank after college. I later went to business school and then was a, a specialist in, in M&A. And uh, I, was a, I was not a distressed or a bankruptcy uh, banker, uh, but uh, Caesars to me, uh, when I started covering it, was uh, really an interesting corporate finance story. There was these interesting transactions that Apollo was doing, uh, and that ultimately turned into the bankruptcy. And then I covered the second part of the bankruptcy for the FT, not on a day-to-day -day basis, but like the big moments. And so uh, Max and I, both at the end of this case, we were both covering it at very different publications and from a different point of view, uh, but we we knew this story was gold. I mean, it was had all these incredible players. The drama was very dramatic. There was a lot of twists and turns, and there hadn't been uh, a book uh, about uh, distress in chapter 11 and uh, restructuring. Uh, many years ago, obviously, Barbarians of the Gate was written, and that was a book about the buyout industry. I like to think of this book as like this, the second half of that, or uh, the, uh, the sequel in some sense. And that this is what happens when a, when a private equity deal goes bad. And so Max and I very fortuitously, uh, by dumb luck, ended up meeting on social media. I had been interested in the book. Uh, he had already started work on a book and we compared notes and we knew it was a, it was a complicated story that uh, could use two, uh, two experienced uh, journalists from, from different backgrounds. And so uh, that's how we came together. It took a while to sell the book. Uh, it's actually pretty hard to sell the book as a sell a book as a first time writer, uh, particularly on a complicated subject. Uh, but we found a publisher and told the story. And the pandemic happened, and all these twists and turns on our own on our own journeys. Uh, but here we are. Was the, did you did you write the book during the pandemic? Or were you done by the time that all, all came around? Yeah, I, fortunately, we the core we've recording done was in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, yeah, we did the, yeah, we, yeah, almost the all, all the in-person interviews flying around. And then last year was editing it. So last year was a good year to be editing a book. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's talk a little bit about high-profile Chapter 11s. Um, what, what are these Neiman, Toys R Us, PG&E, and Hertz? What, what, what do they uh, tell us about this particular case? Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I think that what we like to say is is that uh, you know all of the um, uh, you know all of the the factors that created the modern day chapter eleven process and all the kind of like the interesting innovations by the Caesar's case and then every subsequent bankruptcy also can it can be referenced in some way shape or form to the Caesar's case uh, modern day you know modern day chapter 11 um, it was you know was born out of the the rewriting of the bankruptcy code in 1978 
uh, which, uh, you know, it, it essentially allowed for different creditor classes, you know, before there was maybe just a couple of different banks, they, you know, they were all just assumed to be kind of one, um, you know, like have, have one idea, they get some sort of recovery and, uh, th there wasn't as much representation, uh, between let's say first, second lane unsecureds, uh, um, that might have, you know, different uh, uh, priorities. And so, you know, once that happened and along with the proliferation of junk bonds, uh, it created these just in enormous capital structures at companies that would then uh, need to file, they would need to restructure. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the Chapter 11 process in the U.S. became kind of the model for the world. Uh, and uh, and that, 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 you know, created a very sophisticated uh, uh, um, type of distressed debt investor uh, that, yeah, you know, really uh, uh, found a, a major foothold after the great financial crisis as well. You know, major fortunes were made from that because of the understanding of, of investing in undervalued securities. You know, that's where David Tepper made a lot of his money. Uh, and, uh, uh, it, you know, by the time, uh, you know, this, this case was taking place, uh, there, it was a very, very competitive industry where a lot of people had made a lot of money <laughs> and, you know, it, you would have, if there was a real good opportunity to get involved with a good company that had a bad balance sheet, then there would be a pretty vicious fight over, um, you know, who got, who got control of it, who would be able to make the, like the disproportionate amount of money. Um, so, you know, for around this time, major bankruptcies that happened that result that were the result of, uh, you know, the top of the buyout, <laughs> like the 2006, 2007 buyout boom, uh, that era included, uh, you know, TXU, <laughs> you got, uh, 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 you know, at Caesars, there's, you know, there's, there's five or six uh, other examples of companies that had 20, uh, you know, 20, $30 billion buyouts that eventually filed for bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, those all, those all happened uh, within a couple of years of each other. Uh, and then after, uh, you know, after Caesars, you had uh, uh, cases like uh, you know, J. Crew and uh, and 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 Neiman Marcus, uh, where uh, in in a similar fashion, there was uh, you know what we call the stripping of assets, which is the, uh, away from creditors, which was uh, because of these loopholes in the credit agreements and the indentures uh, that that govern the the bonds and the loans of these companies, the private equity sponsor can through, you know, like through how loose they are, move assets that should have actually provided credit support to those credits, creditors away from them and then give them some sort of negotiating leverage in, in a, you know, in a bankruptcy or a restructuring situation. Uh, and so we, you know, we, we saw, we've seen a lot of those in the, the, the bankruptcies post uh, um, Caesars uh, or even out of court restructurings. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, like, so, we see that, and then we also see a lot of the players uh, from uh, uh, you know from Caesars doing similar things in in, in bankruptcies nowadays. Um, a recent one I can think of is uh, uh, like Acosta was <laughs> this company that Oak Tree and Elliot they wound up 
buying the debt and completely equitizing it, owning the company and then having it emerge debt free. Um, uh, so I, like we, we see a lot of the, like the, the culmination of everything prior to Caesars showing up in Caesars and then everything subsequently is kind of people have learned some, some lessons to then apply in, in these uh, subsequent chapter 11s. It seems to be a feature of distressed debt investing that as the market gets more and more expensive and people pay more and more for these businesses, higher multiples, lower sort of um, possibility of them paying it back that the loans tend to become uh, less, the, the fewer covenants, less protection on the downside. And for whatever reason, everybody seems to be so eager to buy this debt that they're able to get it through. So they call them covenant light. What, what's the, what is a covenant light loan and, and how does that feature in this story? Yeah, I guess since I, I work, you know, I work at Fitch right now that owns Covenant Review and I work, I work closely with the Covenant Review guys, which is a you know, great patient um, or great product that uh, two dozen Levfin attorneys just pouring over hundreds of pages of credit documents. Covenant Light means that uh, like essentially there's no, there's nothing that a company, that ha- like there's no ratios that a company has to maintain in order to uh, uh, you know keep on the good side of the creditors, right? So there's nothing like like they if they stop making any you know uh, money whatsoever, it's not going to go below a certain debt to EBITDA ratio or uh, there's lots of different ratios that would normally be you know maintenance covenants. Like you have to be making X amount of money, you have to be making X amount of revenue compared with your you know your your earnings. Uh, otherwise, the creditors have the right to accelerate and force your payment. In the past, you know, this is normally what you negotiate as a creditor, as the as CLO funds and high yield bond, you know, like bond funds proliferated, and there's just so much money sloshing around looking to buy leveraged loans and bonds. The uh, the creditors had no more negotiating room because if they didn't put into the, they didn't put money into this deal than somebody else would. Um, and so the companies and the private equity firms, they're, you know, they're smart to this. And they'd be like, all right, you know what? Sure, but it, we're not gonna put in any, any covenants that would force us to turn, you know, turn over the keys or pay you back or pay you a fee if uh, there are some dramatic changes in, uh, you know, in our business structure. There's still, you gotta make the interest payments and there's still a lot of uh, you know, different there, all, there's all sorts of covenants that exist, and there's there uh, and requirements depending on the, the you know the different credit agreements. Um, uh, uh, but you know there's there's very few of those uh, you know those those covenants that the companies are required to to maintain a certain uh, a certain type of performance. Uh, otherwise, the, the you know the creditors have a say of what goes on. There's always a tension between. You know, they call it a technical default where something, um, there's some event shifting an asset around or not meeting those that not meeting those uh, covenants that they've installed that allows for the debt holders to collapse on the loan and get control of the assets, which debt holders, they're pretty uh, canny. That's what they're looking to do. The equity holders equally reasonably canny that they're trying to prevent that from happening. So when you have these covenant light loans, does that create the situation where you have 
it's more of a negotiation through the bankruptcy process rather than, you know, previously it would have been settled by we know pretty clearly what everybody's rights are and it falls out, you know, whoever has the closest, whoever's closest to the assets gets control of the assets. Here there seems to be, there's so much debt, there's so much complexity that does it necessitate a sort of negotiation through that chapter 11 process? And is that what creates the, the drama and the tension of something like this? Well, yeah, I think we have to separate the, the, the two different, uh, the barrier is in chapter 11 and then outside of chapter 11. And so if we think about uh, what happened in Caesars, the company struggles for several years after the financial crisis. And because they have covenant light debt and the financial markets are actually wide open, there's a lot of, um, refinancings and uh, uh, exchange offers and traditional uh, what's called liability management things to lower the debt to keep the company alive and to save the company and create value for everyone. Uh, and this is in fact good for creditors because you don't want to, some creditors just don't want to um, foreclose on a, on, a, on a troubled business and they, they prefer that the, the current owners try to fix it. Uh, the flip side is when you cross the line and do things that are so aggressive that those creditors are actually harmed, which I think is uh, the tension that that emerges here. And so then uh, there's a whole there's an entire effort to get a restructuring done outside of bankruptcy and Caesars. The advantage of that is that keeps the private equity owners in charge. They can uh, do come some kind of comprehensive. Uh, restructuring or exchange offer that reduces the debt and everybody takes haircuts and theoretically that's the best alternative for everyone. Uh, what the story of, is about though is when that fails and you end up in bankruptcy, all the rules change. Suddenly there's a judge who's overseeing the process. The private equity firms don't really have as control anymore and everyone gets a voice and gets a chance for their, their grievances to be heard. And uh, it is a very fateful decision to file for bankruptcy because again, you lose control. And once you give everyone a voice, uh, it's a free for all. Uh, and that free for all is uh, I think the basis for the second half of this story. You don't have some protection so that the, they have the, the debt that they've got taken the debt that they take into the bankruptcy has certain rights for recovery and various other things like that. And the, the, the more secured you are, the closer you are to the assets, in my understanding, the better off you were that if you had unsecured covenant light debt, you're basically quasi equity. You're at the back of the pack. You're just going to stand there with everybody else and you're going to get equities gone, probably right. covenant light debt, all that subordinated debt is gone. It's, it's really a fight between the guys who've got some security and if if there's residue beyond that, then there's that's going to cascade down to those other guys. Yeah, I mean, like I do. Well, yeah, what's I, fascinating I, though I would... in in this case is that. Uh... Hey, I I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I how so? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll touch on just um, uh, like compartmentalizing the the covenant issue. Uh, from the the security issue uh, and uh, so like you know the, like covenants uh, ultimately are, are only going to be something to, to uh, negotiate pre-petition uh, as soon as it's it's funny because like as soon as a company files for bankruptcy like the Lev Finn attorneys almost are like all right doesn't matter <laughs> right and then and then it just becomes uh, okay like 
what what is it like that you, what that is your actual security in your, in your claim so I, what do you what do you have liens on were those liens perfected uh, and then do you have uh, other claims um, and what those other claims could be could be these 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 legal claims um, because there were assets that were moved away from you pre-petition uh, could be fraudulent conveyance could be you know uh, that uh, that you know that that there's cash that wasn't actually perfected um, uh, you know which means that it, it it was it was moved too close to the time of the bankruptcy which is some one of the things that happens in this case um, and so the the uh, the different classes of creditors here uh, we'll break them down between there was the the loan group uh, you know which is kind of the top and they had the strongest security uh, and uh, you know and the most uh, most protection they had the first lien bonds uh, which just slightly below the loan uh, loan group but they're both first lien uh, uh, then they have the the second lien bonds and <laughs> after the 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 top two that was 10 billion it was over 10 billion dollars debt right and and uh, it didn't leave much for the second lanes and so the second lanes they were you know essentially part of the plan was to cram them down and then anything under the second lane is just going to be this giant swath of unsecured creditors uh, that get they get lumped in together uh, and uh, you know they would presumably be just e even lower than that um, uh, so and there was a lot of argument and a lot of uh, trying to clarify which creditors had uh, which assets as uh, as security uh, in addition to the like the fight to pull assets back into the opco box that had been moved out of it pre-petition and so all, all that was going on and there's you know it's it's a it's a, that's why there's so many fees in bankruptcy all these different constituencies get uh, a financial advisor and they get a uh, 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 you know, a legal counsel, uh, and and yeah, and I and I think so. G like could, I, I think could could talk about the second lien group, but I would say the most significant group here is that second lien group uh, that that uh, that contained the uh, you know Appaloosa and Oak Tree uh, as you know their two their two main uh, uh, you know pugnacious constituents, uh, and one of the most interesting uh, uh, things that happen in this bankruptcy that you'll hardly ever see. It, uh, and that, you know, really kind of, it was one of those momentum shifts was that the second lean group got uh, uh, its own official committee separate from the unsecured creditors committee. The debtor was trying to say, oh, these second lien creditors, you know, like, they shouldn't even be on the unsecured creditors committee. Like they're not really part of the, you know, the UCC and the unsecured. It's important to get onto an official committee because then you get all your fees paid by the estate. And, uh, and, and, you know, like ultimately the, the, uh, you know, the trustees, the, you know, it's this, uh, 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 you know, governmental uh, uh, appointee that, or, um, uh, you know that appoints these these creditors committee in the in the bankruptcy process, which is a federal process. Uh, he was like, "Yeah, you're right. You know what? They're not really unsecured creditors. I, I think they should get their own committee. <laughs> there should be a set an official second link committee." And then the debtor was like, "No, no, I can't. I, we don't. 
no, it's a, a, we, we, we highly oppose this. And ultimately they did, they prevailed. They got their own, their own committee, which means all their fees were paid by the estate, which kind of, which, which created, you know, which really funded, uh, you know, uh, uh, like this, a monster who, you know, is this, you know, amazing uh, yeah, attorney uh, who is kind of like born for this type of fight. Uh, uh, Sajid, you, you want to, uh, uh, talk about the uh, second lien group in bankruptcy. What's really interesting, you, you hit an important point, Tobias, is that the riskiest, the, the order of risky debt goes from senior to junior. But, and by that logic, the equity holders should be in the worst possible position. But what the brilliance of Apollo is, and they've done this in so many cases, is that the equity holder, while it's still at the bottom, it controls the company, it controls the management, it controls the restructuring plan. And so even being at the bottom, they can figure out a way to stay in control. And so in the Caesars case, the whole, the whole game is that they're going to engineer the restructuring plan. They're gonna figure out what the new company looks like, the new capital structure, and they're gonna keep an interest by buying the new company's equity. And so they're going to put in a few hundred million dollars at a, to, to buy Caesars at a cheap value. And that allows them to stay in control, even though, to your point, they, they should theoretically be wiped out. And they would have been, their original equity would have been wiped out. But in fact, they're going to stay in control by buying the new equity at a cheap valuation. And they can make up for all those previous losses. So in fact, the worst position is not being the equity holder. It's being uh, a junior or unsecured uh, bondholder. Unless you can get yourself on a committee. Yes. Well, that's uh, that's the rub. Yes. And then you get your fees paid for. So there's no uh, there's no incentive to negotiate or to stop negotiating at any point. You just keep on pushing for as long as you possibly can and just become nettlesome and you finally get your your payment to go away. Right. It's one strategy. Uh, so what's what's the Caesar's legacy. You, you, you say uh, aggressive PE sponsors, asset stripping, priming. What what do these things mean? Uh, yeah, though I mean, those are everything that Apollo got called out for. I, you know, it's a, it's a it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but I think it's it, it's also it's also true. Everything um, that. You know, Apollo was really behind a lot of these different the, the financial engineering um, prior to the bankruptcy, uh, and you know, the asset stripping was when they were you know they're, again they're moving casinos and different assets away from the operating company that ultimately holds all the debt, and um, that was the entity that filed for bankruptcy. Uh, uh, you know, the priming priming deals ha uh, are when uh, uh, you, you have, you know, one group of creditors that, that you know, they're, they're similarly situated creditors and you have one group that uh, makes it strikes a deal with the company. And then all of a sudden they get priority over the other half, that same group. Um, and, uh, uh you know, we, there's a couple of, of deals, uh, kind of like that, that were struck, especially like one particularly egregious one was where 51% of one bondholder, like bond group uh, struck a 
deal with Apollo, uh, you know, that essentially got them them paid back at 75 cents on the dollar and got the other group almost wiped out. <laughs> all right. And it was in it. And all these transactions, uh, most of them got called out in in the bankruptcy um, by the independent examiner uh, as being, you know, either uh, like uh, subject to potential fraudulent conveyance or corporate or corporate governance claims. Uh, and eventually Apollo lost their equity check and you know, their original equity checks. So you, you would think that the lesson would be don't do those things, but that's not the lesson. That's uh, everyone saw that they did that <laughs> and how hard it was, you know, it, it was to fight to, to, you know, and like by lots of different strokes of luck uh, and skill that the, you know, the junior creditors were able to get some sort of recovery, how hard that was. And so now the playbook is to do all of those things, uh, uh, you know, and that's, you see that like Travelport, Elliott Management, one of the, you know, the, the lead first lien uh, uh, of the first lien bond group in Travelport, they stripped a billion dollars worth of assets. That's the IP for this uh, essentially kind of travel payment processing company uh, uh, away from their creditors. And then they, you know, it went into an unrestricted, a pair of unrestricted subsidiaries. And then they borrowed money off of that asset. And they're like, I'm, you know what, we're just going to put $500 million in debt that's now senior to everybody else. So that's asset stripping and priming. <laughs> right there and then the other creditors were like no, 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 no we're you know all right we'll 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 provide that like just put them back like you know tighten up our credit agreement and uh, you know and here's some money and elliot got a better deal than they would have had they not been able to do that um sort of simmons is another one we had you know like uh, and these things are they're taking out of uh, place out of court where you have uh, uh you know groups of creditors that are clamoring over themselves to uh, provide financing to a company that will uh, become senior to all of the other existing debt. Uh, and, and that took place a lot in, in 2020. Gents, uh, we're coming up on time. If, uh, if folks want to uh, find the book or, or get in touch with you guys or follow along with what you're doing, what's the best way to go about doing that? Uh, so I, yeah, yeah, you know, follow us both on Twitter. Uh, I'm just at Max Frumes, M-A-X-F-R-U-M-E-S. Uh, and then, you know, the best place to buy the book that helps with Amazon. our rankings is on, uh, is on Amazon. Everyone loves that. But it's, you know, it's funny, bookshop.org and, uh, and Walmart, when the first run kind of, you know, sold out quickly or there was some shipping issue and, uh, in, you know, and Amazon was, hit with more orders than they had expected because um, you know, it's a highly sought after uh, popular book right now. Uh, Bookshop.org and, and Walmart were the other two, <laughs> the only other two places that people could get it. Um, and uh, uh, Sajit, where, where, where do people follow you? Uh, Twitter's a great place. Uh, I'm just at uh, my Sindap, uh, S-I-N-D-A-P. Uh, and of course, uh, in, the, in the Financial Times. Gents, it's an absolutely fascinating story. Uh, the Caesar's Palace Coup by Max Verumis and Sujit Indep. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having us, Tobias. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Tobias. This was great. <laughs>